Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Hello, Rebecca. Hey, Sarah. What you doing? I'm excited for this episode. Well, when am I not excited for an episode? But <laughs> true enough. <laughs> This one is special because of the human that we get to listen to. We are listening to Dennis Berg. That name might sound a little familiar. How did you Just a tad. <laughs> I don't know if there's too many people left who don't know Dennis Berg right now. Um, I met Dennis when I first started at the museum. So that was nearly seven years ago. And honestly, I don't think he talked to me for the first year that I was working here. What? At the time, I thought he didn't like me, like enough to just ignore me for a year. And and in retrospect, he was watching me that entire year and taking notes and summing me up. And then all of a sudden, in my second year, he started talking and we really haven't shut up since. Anyone who's talked to Denny probably knows that you get something new in every conversation. He has so many stories and so many amazing experiences and he knows interesting people and he's gone interesting places and the the fullness of life that he has lived. I could sit and listen to him talk about it literally all day. He is on the board of directors for the Anoka County Historical Society. Just lead off with that. People have driven past his corn stand for years going up to now then. Uh, He was the Anoka County Commissioner and chair of that for many years and all around amazing human. You said lots of stories. He took it one step further and sat down, wrote out his autobiography a couple years ago and gave it to his family and to us at the History Center. Um, We thought that it would be really interesting to have not only his written words, but to have his written words spoken in his own voice. Uh, He has a very distinctive voice. We can't imagine the times that we wished somebody had told their story. We don't have to wish for that in this case. He did tell his story and he starts with growing up on a farm, talking about meeting his wife and it just gets me in all of the feels and also his time in Vietnam as a soldier and what that was like. It's definitely something you guys need a tissue box handy for, especially if you have similar experiences. I had a really hard time choosing what we would share in this episode because it all fits together and creates the one life of Dennis Berg. Content warning. This podcast contains descriptions of engagements in Vietnam. If you would like to skip it entirely, it lasts from the 22 to 34 minute mark in this episode. By way of introduction, I'm Dennis Berg at the um, encouragement of my grandkids and realizing how much the world had changed during my lifetime, I sat down several years ago and wrote my um, autobiography, kind of what I entitled um, my life story. 
Um, I titled it Growing Up Barefooted by Dennis D. Berg. I was born on September 16, 1945 in Glenwood, Minnesota, two weeks after the official end of World War II. My parents, C.H. Cornelius, and Phyllis Berg, along with my one-year-old brother Gary, lived on a farm that was rented. Living on a farm with all sorts of livestock and field work, my brother Gary and I had to work hard. Other than church and school, we had little time for anything else. That is not to say we didn't have a good childhood. I enjoyed farming and still do. I look forward to time spent visiting grandparents and playing with my cousins. We never went hungry, and on Saturday night we all took a bath in the wash tub and went to town. Gary and I each got 15 cents allowance. We spent three cents on candy and 12 cents going to a movie. After the movie, we would find Grandpa Evian playing rummy at the card room. Either he or Herman Sylvester would always buy each of us a five cent ice cream cone. When I was four years old, we moved on to a rented farm neighboring the Otteson homestead where my future wife Darlene lived. The farm had running water to the barn in the house, it was to the kitchen sink only, with a pail to catch and carry out the dirty water. The only buildings without electricity were the outhouse and summer kitchen. The outhouse was a two-holer, a big hole for adults, and a small training hole for kids. The only room that was heated was the main kitchen and dining area. My brother and I shared an upstairs bedroom. In the winter, we couldn't have water in our room because it would freeze. The barn was always warmer, and with Mom and Dad doing the chores together, Gary and I spent a lot of time as preschoolers playing with the barn animals. When I was in third grade, we moved to a neighboring farm with a bathroom and furnace. I started first grade in a one-room school, grades one through eight, one teacher, two outhouses. I liked country school. The older kids would help teach the younger ones, Bullying was not a problem because everyone had an older brother or cousin for protection. Also, we were all farm kids living the same lifestyle, which translates to that we had all the same barn smell. At the start of each day, two of the older students would walk to the closest farm and get a pail of water for the water fountain. We brought lunch from home and put what needed to be warmed on top of the fuel oil stove that heated the school. By noon, we had warm soup warm hot dish, or a parsley baked potato. For recess, we went outside to the playground and had fun, even without anyone there organizing our games. In the winter, we made snow forts and had snowball fights or walked to the pond to play stick hockey with a can. In the spring and fall, we played softball and marbles. After recess, the teacher would read a chapter from a library book. The series Little House on the Prairie was my favorite. The years following World War II were especially good for agriculture. Working together during this time, Mom and Dad built up their livestock operation and purchased a full line of new farm equipment. In 1951, they traded their car for a new Ford with a heater. It was a very big deal. We could now do non-essential winter travel and no longer needed the car blankets and hot water bottles. 
I was disappointed to discover that we needed to drive a while before the car got warm, but looking out the frosted windows was a surprise. We had good farm equipment, but the land was rented. By 1956, we had a large successful operation with over 400 acres. When the government introduced a farm program called Soil Bank, landowners could bid to have their tillable farmland taken out of production. The price per acre varied by location and number of acres bid in. All the lad dad rented was awarded bids higher than what he could match and still make farming profitable. This program also drove up the price to buy good land because owners would not sell when the soil bank under contract would pay more than the going selling price. With no land to rent or buy, Dad sold most of his equipment and cattle, and because the soil bank paid considerably less per acre in Anoka County, he used the proceeds to buy a small farm in Ham Lake. The only tractor Dad moved was a 50 John Deere. Rather than the pay to have it hauled, he drove the tractor with corn picker and elevator and tow the 150 miles from Starbuck. In 1959, my dad sold the Ham Lake farm and bought a 200-acre dairy farm near St. Francis. I was excited. We now had a 30-cow barn, a full set of outbuildings, and a two-story farmhouse with enough bedrooms that I only had to share with one brother. In Ham Lake, four of us shared one room. My brothers and I switched to St. Francis High School mid-year. The school was predominantly farm kids. They even had an ag class and FFA, Future Farmers of America. The first couple years living in St. Francis were good as dad got a better paying job working construction and the farm was making money. With dad working construction, he was gone during the week Mom and my brothers and I did most of the farm work. We had the barn full of cattle, and considering the quality of the soil, crops were good. With neighbors working together, it felt like a community. I graduated from St. Francis High School in 1963. Because of the turmoil at home, my memory of the last three years of high school run together. What I remember most is my desire to be outside, preferably alone in the woods with my coon hounds, and at the same time stay close enough to home in case mom needed help. When dad and I had gotten into a fight, I told him I was all done milking cows. I left home for a week, and when I returned, the cows had been sold. My younger brother and I still helped with field work, but for the most part, I hired myself out to other farmers. At 15 years of age, I had bought my first car, a 1953 Mercury, that I used for getting to work and my favorite for-profit hobbies, training coonhound pups and trapping. I could make more money doing this than working by the hour. Coon hunting is a night sport, and the self-taught skills and physical conditioning of this hobby served me well in Vietnam. By the time I graduated from high school, my younger brothers, Kurt and Darrell, were doing most of the farm work. The morning after graduation, Dad asked me to start paying room and board. Under the circumstances, it was a reasonable request, and if I moved out, I had the problem of what to do with my hounds. I knew I would need a better paying job, and the local shopper had a help wanted ad at the feed mill in Elk River. 
On my way to Elk River, the front wheel bearing of my car seized up near Greenberg Rambler in Nowlin. I was repairing it myself on the street when the owner, Harvey Greenberg, asked if I needed help. Before I had the wheel back on, he had offered me a job. Full-time jobs were hard to find, so I felt truly blessed to be so lucky. I started that same day. That was the beginning of a lifelong, meaningful relationship between my family and the Greenberg family. By Christmas, I had saved up enough to trade my car for a used 1961 Plymouth six-cylinder. With a dependable car, I decided to go to Starbuck and visit my grandparents and cousins. It was a life-changing trip. I also visited a friend from my country school days, Howard Meyer. He needed a car to take a girl roller skating. I told him if he asked Darlene Otteson, we could double date. I had a crush on her since first grade, but didn't have the courage to ask her for a date. In fact, I once asked my mother about Darlene, and she told me not to get my hopes up because her family was in a much higher social class than we would ever be. I got both excited and scared when Howard told me she said yes. I didn't know how to roller skate, but we had a wonderful time getting reacquainted. Darlene was a senior at high, Starbuck High School, and after several more dates, asked me to her school prom. St. Francis had proms and homecoming dances, but I had never gone to one. Now my problem was, I didn't know how to dance. Because I was in love, I wasn't going to let that stop me. I had my mother give me some instructions. Greenbergs gave me the time off, and it was wonderful. However, years later, we decided I needed to take dancing lessons before we would try that again. Darlene had a scholarship to Concordia College in Moorhead. This meant that in the fall, we would be separated by 220 miles. I had been saving money for more schooling, and since math and accounting was something I enjoyed in high school, I decided to attend Interstate Business College in Fargo, North Dakota. I enrolled in a two-year program with hopes of getting a CPA certification. When school started, I worked a night shift at M&H gas station in Moorhead and shared a one-room basement kitchenette. By the end of the first semester, I was exhausted from lack of sleep, so I decided to use the last of my savings and borrow $300 from my uncle to cover expenses. I quit my job and took extra classes. That spring, I completed the year in the top 10% of my class and only needed one winter semester with extra classes to get my degree. I was signed up for the classes, but I didn't have the $380 down payment to register. Since I had a good job waiting for me as assistant bookkeeper at Greenberg's, the college was okay with me sending the money over the summer. I could have borrowed from my uncle again, but my parents were hurt when word got back to them about the $300 I borrowed last winter. What I didn't realize is that by not putting money down, I lost my student deferment. And within a, within a month, I was reclassified 1A and drafted into the military that fall. I completed Army basic training in time to come home for Christmas. Before leaving Fort, for Fort Leonard Wood, I purchased an engagement ring at the PX. What I could afford on Army pay was pathetic, but it worked. Darlene said yes. 
with college for her and military for me, we couldn't set a wedding date, but just knowing we had a future together was enough for me. Darlene went back to college, and I started advanced individual training at Fort Lewis, Washington, to be a truck driver with the 87th Transportation Company. Normally, AIT is eight weeks. I trained for 24 weeks. In addition to driving, I completed training that required a top security clearance, and the 87th was on orders to go on company leave the last two weeks of August and ship out for Vietnam in September. I was notified by the post commander that before the company shipped out, I was going to be reassigned to headquarters company, Fort Lewis, Washington. Darlene and I decided that we could be together sooner if we got married while I was home on leave. As part of the deployment, I was assigned to typing, or was assigned to typing orders when I realized that I would also be going to Vietnam. Wanting to be alone and sort out what I was doing, going to tell Darlene, I went to the one place that I knew would be vacant on a Saturday, the chapel. On the altar was an open Bible. Curious as to what the soldier before me had read, I started reading. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that was me, and God would be with me. That letter to Darlene was the hardest letter I had ever written. After completion of training, I got a two-week leave. Because of the airlines being on strike, I lost a couple days of leave time and almost didn't get home. The Minnesota Air National Guard saved the day for us when I called them and asked for a ride home. Before I was drafted, I traded my car for a used 64 Rambler that Darlene would need when I was gone. When she picked me up at the airport, the transmission was not shifting. It was obvious that we wouldn't make it 150 miles to Starbucks. This was a problem. With four days until the wedding and less than $100 between the two of us and knowing she needed a car after I shipped out, we headed for Greenberg's. Trained that it would be something minor, Waldo Lestico, the transmission mechanic, informed us that we needed a complete transmission overhaul. The parts alone would cost several hundred dollars. Before we could figure out what to do, Harvey Greenberg went home and got his personal car and told us we could use it until I shipped out. Because we couldn't afford to fix our car, we just left it there until we could come up with a plan. When I got to the church for our wedding on Saturday, our car was sitting in front of the church. Waldo had worked nights overhauling the transmission. Harvey and his wife, Ellen, drove it 130 miles to the church on Saturday morning and told us not to worry about the bill. Because of the car, we had given up plans for a honeymoon. Thanks to the cash we got for wedding gifts, Greenberg and Waldo Lestico, we got to enjoy a five-day honeymoon. I shipped out for Vietnam on September 7th aboard the troop ship USNS John, General John Pope. Life on the ship was miserable, 
but at least the days counted toward my one-year deployment. We were so overcrowded below deck that I volunteered for guard duty just to be on the top deck. I made the ship chapel part of my daily routine and missed Darlene terribly. That would not change until I was home again. October 2nd, we landed on a beach at Natrang, but had to reboard four hours later due to a change in orders. That night from aboard ship, we watched the sky light up from explosions as the base was under attack. October 3rd, we moved into tents at TC Hill on the southwest corner of Long Bend. This would be my base camp for the balance of my tour. Up to this time, my paradigm of the war was trucks and combat. I was not prepared for living on mud in tents overrun with rats and shaving out of a helmet. I didn't mind the outhouse except I preferred a one hole to one occupied 12 holer. Our mission was to move arriving personnel and equipment to their base camps. From the day our trucks arrived, we were on the road 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It would be months before I got a day off. My job was a little different than most of the drivers because of my security clearance. I was assigned all the trucks that were class, all the loads that were classified. The benefits was that I drove less than most. The downside was that I had more paperwork and my load would be a priority target for the enemy. Every Vietnam veteran has a story that needs to be shared. I will share two. My scariest day and my worst day. Our motor pool was on the edge of Long Bend Base Camp. As such, my company had the responsibility of securing our perimeter. Beyond the cleared portion was thick undergrowth with shallow trenches caused from the tracks of our tanks. Each night, as an advance warning of attack, we would have a two-man team hide in track trenches about a quarter mile from camp, listening for enemy troop movement. We would warn the base camp by firing a flare. One night, Tom Beckerman and I were on a listening post duty. After the camp had quietened down and generators shut off, we could hear people walking. The VC wore flip-flops, and what we heard was the sound of the flip-flops hitting the bottom of their feet. The sound of the flare going off would give away our location, so the policy was to wait until the danger had moved beyond us. We got concerned that the lead element would reach the camp, and yet they kept coming. This gave us no choice but to fire off a flare. When we popped a flare, nothing happened. The area lit up, and nobody was out there. The camp came to life, choppers in the air, reaction force called out, generators started lighting up the camp perimeter, but no VC. Troops came out and swept the area between us and the camp and found no sign of the enemy. Tom and I insisted that we heard them. All that got us was a good chewing out. We relocated after the camp quietened down and heard them moving again. Both sides of us this time. Tom crawled into my trench. We decided that we needed to get proof before we fired another flare. We quietly crawled out and located the source of the sound. Survey stakes with plastic strips blowing in the breeze. My worst day was November 21st, 1966. 
The events of this day have been well documented by books and declassified after action reports. In 1993, I came to terms with myself and decided I needed to share Vietnam with Darlene and family. One of the events that made November 21st so hard for me was that my life was saved by a soldier that sacrificed his life and I didn't even know his name. On Veterans Day 2018, I was honored to be the speaker at St. Francis High School. The following is what I shared with the veterans and students in attendance. I came home from Vietnam in September of 1967. I transitioned from a full combat environment to being that of a civilian in less than three days. For me, the war was over and I made up my mind I would never look back. I even burned all my uniforms except for the one I wore home. In looking back, I now realized that I was really messed up. I was hospitalized with a bleeding ulcer. I mowed my lawn at night because I was afraid the routine of mowing would attract the attention of a sniper. I stayed away from conversations about the war and especially didn't tell Darlene anything about the bad things because I was afraid she wouldn't understand why we had to do the things we did. The other reason I didn't say anything was fear of giving out classified information. I will never know for sure what I was hauling the day Russell Halley was killed, but whatever it was, the Viet Cong wanted it bad enough to commit over a thousand troops to the effort of capturing my load. For 40 years I've had a calling in my soul that said I needed to find Russell and tell his story. Russell and I never met. I did not even know his name for the first 27 years of my search. I needed to find him because PFC, Russell Lewis Halley, was the best friend I will ever have. He gave his life to save mine. Russ had trained to be a cavalryman with 11th Armored Cavalry, the Black Horse Regiment. His primary mission would be convoy escort. In other words, he trained to protect convoys from ambush. I had trained to be a convoy driver with the 87th Transportation Company. Late on the night of November 20th, 1966, Russ and his team arrived in Long Bend, Vietnam, my base camp. It was a cold, wet night. They had little time to do maintenance on their armored cavalry assault vehicles as they were scheduled for a convoy escort to Swanlock at 0700 hours the next morning. Six trucks from the 87th, my company, and two trucks from the 86th arrived at the convoy staging area in Long Bend at 0600 hours on the morning of the 21st. We had spent the night in the rain loading our trucks. My truck had what military historians described as a most precious cargo. Because of order changes, the convoy did not depart until 9.20. It consisted of 80 trucks and nine A-cabs, one of which was C-13, Russ's A-cab. At 10.05, 45 minutes after departure, a coded intelligence message arrived at regimental headquarters warning of an ambush. Our convoy commander, Lieutenant Keltner, received the message and notified his A-cab units before the ambush that help was on the way. At 10.25, I followed the trucks in front of me into the ambush. My attempt to make a run for it was blocked when two of the four trucks in front of me and three trucks behind me were destroyed by anti-tank rockets.
My shotgun rider and I abandoned our vehicle for the protection of the ditch. We were so pinned down by machine gun fire from across the road that we couldn't even move to a better firing position. Behind us, except for the three burning trucks, the rest of the convoy had stopped before they entered the kill zone. With these trucks were two ACAF units, C-13 and C-18. Knowing the size of the enemy force and that help was on the way, they had a choice. Stay back and protect the trucks not under attack and wait for help remove forward and try to save what may already be a lost cause. They both moved forward full speed, all guns a-blazing. C-18 was in the lead and fought to death even before they got past the three burning trucks. C-13, Russell's unit, kept coming past the burning trucks and stopped on the road in front of my truck, engaging the enemy's three-man gun team that had Larry and I pinned down. Because the enemy was in the ditch below Russell's machine gun, he had to race up above his protective shield to get the enemy. While doing so successfully, he was mortally wounded. Within 30 seconds while protecting us, his ACAV received at least four rounds of recoilless anti-tank rifle fire, but continued to engage the enemy, even with the entire crew wounded. Only after they were on fire did they move out of the kill zone. This diversion gave us surviving drivers a chance to group up, share ammo, and protect our wounded until more help arrived. Russell and four other Black Horse cavalrymen died as heroes that day, doing the jobs they were sent to do, protecting convoys. The reason Russell and I never met was that Russell was flown to a field hospital before the battle was over. During the course of the day, I was unable to give much thought to the unknown soldier who had come to our aid. That night, I was told that he had died of his wounds. I remember being told he was married, and I'm sure I was told his name. At the time, I was preoccupied by the threat of another attack, the death of two of my buddies, my first real combat experience, the concern for a wounded friend. I forgot his name. The next day, my squad and I returned to our base camp. That night, I wrote a letter to my brother telling him of the battle and the unknown unknown soldier who had saved my life. Months later, my squad got letters from the families of our teammates wanting information on how they died. One of the letters had a birth announcement of a baby born two months after her father was killed with a handwritten note. Please tell me what happened to my daddy. That letter got me thinking about the unknown soldier, if he had any children and if they would ever wonder how he died. After the war, I thought about this a lot. I had no way of locating his family. In 1987, at the public library, I found a book with a picture on the cover of a battle scene. I recognized it immediately as the November 21st ambush. From this book, I got the name of Lieutenant Neil Keltner. I wrote a letter to the author and publisher trying to locate him. I received no answer. Next, I got a list of the names on the wall of the more than 50 killed that day. I narrowed it down to four, but could go no further as there was no information. During these years, I had made many phone calls, written letters, and gone to re reunions to no avail. In 1993, I finally got lucky at a reunion in Indiana. I met a Susie Birch who was also looking for information about the ambush. 
She recognized Lieutenant Keltner's name as someone she had interviewed. Two days later, she called me with his phone number in Texas. I called him, and Neil's wife answered the phone. She got excited when I identified myself, because all these years, Neil had been wondering who I was. When I asked him about the unknown soldier, he, he was not sure, as he too had been seriously wounded shortly afterwards. We went over my list of four names. One name came up, Russell Halley. Thanks to the six-page declassified secret document detailing the events leading up to and including the ambush, I recently discovered I was transporting fireproof file cabinets containing classified documents and personnel records to a new base camp as part of Operation Atlanta. The intelligence message given a 10-minute warning of the ambush came from an Air Force plane codenamed Philizan. My promotion to acting sergeant with no leadership experience or training was a game changer. The squad leader before me had let us down when he deserted us under fire, and I didn't want to end up like him. My biggest fear was to be responsible for someone not making it home. I am thankful that under my watch that did not happen. We had all lived and trained together for over a year and not only supported each other, but understood that we had to work together if we wanted to survive. I understood how strong this bond was and made every effort to reinforce it. I often had to look the other way on discipline because the squad would defend the offender. Soldiers don't die protecting country. They die protecting each other. In Vietnam, when I was feeling down, it was a comfort knowing Darlene was waiting for me and someday we would have a life together. I would watch the sun rise and set and feel connected to her because she'd be watching the same sun halfway around the world. My view of the war changed also. In the beginning, I believed the domino theory that we were there to stop the spread of communism, and I also believed we were helping a country in need of protection as they embraced democracy. In working with the South Vietnamese troops, I realized they took offense when we referred to North Vietnam as the enemy. The older population had good memories of Vietnam before it was divided up after World War II. On the radio, we would listen to President Johnson address the nation and knew firsthand he was lying. South Vietnam is a country rich in natural resources and an ideal military location with natural harbors and guarding the back door of China, Korea, and Russia. Historically, Vietnam had defended itself from colonialism three times, China, Japan, and France. By our actions and the fact that we were building military bases as, as if we intended to occupy them indefinitely, the South Vietnamese troops freed, feared they may be helping us colonize their country for the benefit of the USA. Something was terrible wrong when the invading army could move around the countryside undetected and the good guys that were helping to defend the people got ambushed almost daily. When I left Vietnam, I turned the lights off on the memory, smell, sound, and the times. I had watched the sun set and said goodbye, Darlene. I love you. What I saved was her smile at sunrise and letters of love and hope. 
The happiest day of my life was the day I left Vietnam. I flew out of Ben Hoi Air Force on a TWA jet. On takeoff, everyone was silent. When the plane reached an altitude that was, altitude that was safe from ground fire, the plane exploded with cheering and clapping. From the airport in Oakland, California, we got bused to the U.S. Army Personnel Center to process out of the Army. Windows on the bus were covered with paint blocking our view. Looking through the windshield, I could see protesters lined up holding signs. I was wondering what the protest was about, then realized it was us. I had never been able to describe what, with words how that made me feel. At the personnel center, we could process out at our own pace. Other than the first hot shower in over a year and a steak and eggs breakfast, we processed through the night. In the morning, I got paid and issued a new Class A uniform, complete with all my medals and patches. I felt proud wearing it out to the waiting cab. I had served my country's call to arms and served with distinction in a God-honoring honoring way. When we arrived at the airport, security stopped us at the door. They advised us to take off our uniform, since, but since we had nothing to change into, we were permitted to purchase tickets and then leave until our flight time. If we didn't, they would not be responsible for our safety. Because my flight was ready to board, I got to stay. I was out of cigarettes and went to the cigarette machine. The price had gone up to 50 cents a pack. I had promised Darlene I'd quit smoking when I got out of the Army. Rather than, rather than waste what I wouldn't smoke on the plane, I decided to quit. I hadn't slept since leaving Vietnam and fell asleep as soon as I boarded. The next thing I knew, the plane was empty and the captain was trying to wake me. When I walked off the plane, Darlene, her parents and brother Steve, my parents and all my siblings, were there to greet me. It was wonderful. My sister-in-law, Joyce, took a picture of me. It is the only picture I have wearing that new uniform. I have only one regret in life. Today it's called post-traumatic stress disorder. I didn't even know there was such a thing 30 years ago. The regret is not so much for myself as it is for my family, especially Darlene. For me, PTSD has two drivers, survivor's guilt and combat. Survivor's guilt is not only coming to terms of being a survivor when others died, it is that they died rescuing me and I couldn't do anything to save them. Combat guilt is knowing what you are capable of doing to your fellow man and trying to justify it. Did we answer a call to duty that was God-honoring or was it sinful in the eyes of God? I recognized my PTSD 10 years ago. I don't like the soldier that lives inside of me. He just won't give up the fight and come home. Because I kept my soldier silent, I didn't realize the public perception of Vietnam vets changed after Desert Storm. My first realization occurred when I was entering a restaurant in Painesville, Minnesota. I was holding the door open for a young mother with two toddlers. She looked at my farm all name tagged and asked if I was Dennis Berg, that is a Vietnam vet. I immediately bristled up expecting her to start condemning me. 
Instead, she said, I want to thank you for serving my country and welcome home. I was paralyzed in shock and unable to respond. I then returned to my car and cried. A stranger had never said that to me before. It is not easy for me to share this part of my life. My hope is that it will encourage other veterans to discover the healing power of sharing their story. If we don't, the protected will never know the price of freedom. When I was in Vietnam, I prayed for a chance to experience married life with Darlene. I didn't dare push my luck and ask for a family. That was 53 years ago, and he continues to answer my prayer with the added blessing of a family. And I summed it up on the last page with, to all my families, happiness cannot be found if you are alone, stay connected and enjoy God's gift. Thank you. Read all about it in the Noka County Library Minute. Hello listeners, my name is Diana Nurberg and I'm an adult services librarian at the Northtown Library here to offer up some additional resources related to this episode's topic. First we have Autopsy of War, a personal history by John A. Parrish. This book is a memoir highlighting how post-traumatic stress disorder can sometimes show up in a stark juxtaposition of outward appearance and internal struggle. PTSD is often referred to as an invisible wound. While Parrish on the outside is a successful doctor, he writes candidly about his decades-long internal struggles after returning from Vietnam. Next we have The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. This work of fiction brings together a string of stories from Vietnam veterans on the emotional weight they brought back with them. Achieving such accolades as being a New York Times Book of the Century as well as a Pulitzer Prize finalist, the things they carried might well be considered a modern classic. If graphic novels are your thing, check out The Best We Could Do. It deals with both the historical trauma a Vietnamese family endures post-war, as well as parent-child relationships. The story is told alternating between present-day familial struggles and from the parent's point of view during the war. Finally, we have To Be of Service by Josh Aronson. This documentary film looks at the relationship between veterans suffering from PTSD and the service animals that help them. For many returning veterans, medication and other therapies are insufficient. This documentary shows how the introduction of a service animal can help struggling veterans regain independence and find solace. For more information on these and other resources, go to anokacountylibrary.org or stop by your local library. Thanks and happy learning. Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. Direct links to these books and more can be found in the episode show notes at anokacountyhistory.org. Wow, I know that we've both read through his entire memoir when it first was donated to us a few years ago, but there's just something different about hearing his voice, telling his own stories. It's really hard to explain. Especially the break in his voice. When I was sitting in the chair listening and had my notebook, and I was making notes about the draft, and I stopped thinking, and I just sat there and absorbed because it was his voice and his experience, and it puts you in a different place. It's like it's really easy to keep things at arm length, arm's length 
when you're reading about history in this capital H history type of way. But when it's somebody that you know, somebody that lives where you live, that had these experiences, it hits differently. It becomes part of your makeup as well. We were trying not to throw Denny under the old bus, as you said, but he grew up with an outhouse. These people are walking among us, these electrical, non-electrical, non-toilet using people. They live. I just appreciate the place that we have gotten where uh, technology is becoming so much more accessible that it isn't a big production to save somebody's voice for the future. Right? I save my mom's voicemails all the time. I've got a whole folder of just her voicemails because they're those offhanded messages of, hey, I'm thinking about you. Give me a call when you can. And there's nothing performative about them. They're just her voice. So if you've ever felt that you're not a writer, that you just, you can't sit down and open a Word document and start writing your own story, pull out your phone, be a storyteller and uh, record your memories that way. And then you can send them to us. We could add a little voicemail section onto the end of the podcast. Digital file preservation is a thing in, in museums. You got it. It's part of our archive too. Keep your zeros and ones in line, ladies. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Denny did sit down and record the entire memoir, which is about an hour and a half-ish long. Uh, so if you want to listen to the entire um, recording, it is uploaded on our vault for members. And the written copy, you can come into the History Center and sit down and read that as well. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. If you have a question, want to visit our show notes page for each episode, or would like to share your own story, go to anokacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras as well as the latest digital resources at History 21 The Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future.